Hello, and welcome to another episode of Screen Bites, our thought leader series where we learn from industry experts about the latest trends and challenges from across the conversion TV space. I'm your host, Michael Beach. This week, I'm joined by Rashad Tabakawala. Rashad wears many hats, including author, public speaker, as well as senior advisor to Publicis Group, which is the world's largest communications firm with 80,000 employees. It would be hard to find a more respected person in the marketing industry. Please enjoy my conversation with Rashad Tabakawala. Hi, Rashad. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, a two-part opener, we like to ask all of our guests, um, you know, first, you know, what was your first job? And, and secondly, how did you get started in the uh, media space? My first job was also how I started in the media space. I was a media planner and buyer for Leo Burnett Advertising Agency, which I joined in 1982 in Chicago. And uh, 37 years later, when I finished my career, I was still in the Leo Burnett building, but I was no longer buying media. Excellent. Um, you know, another thing, you know, we're, I'm a big fan of your book, uh, Restoring the Soul of Business. Um, got a bunch of questions. Uh, we'd love to ask you about that, but um, and kind of some of your recent writing, you know, as the, the world of advertising continues to shift towards, you know, you know data-driven and digital, um, you know, I guess first, what should advertisers and networks be focused on uh, to continue to grow? Um, and then, you know, where should technology just be kind of a smaller part uh, and, and kind of the human elements become more critical? So, I, you know, I believe it is the, the premise of my book that successful organizations as well as people combine the story and the spreadsheet. And the spreadsheet are three key things, uh, an understanding of how technology is evolving, a understanding that data does matter to both decision making as well as things like personalization, um, and that uh, PNL matters because if you have no money, you will not be around. So those are the three things on the spreadsheet. Um, However, those are, in most cases, necessary. Uh, just like, as I mentioned, data is like electricity. You can't live without it. But very few people separate themselves on how they use electricity. So similarly, what separates people once they basically have a basic understanding of technology, a data, and a P&L that works, is the story side of the business. And the story side of the business is the talent in the organization, uh, the culture of the organization, and the purpose and values for which the company, the organization, or the issue stands or problems they're trying to solve. And over time, uh, companies that do those in a good combination, which I call balance, unify, and integrate those characteristics well, are the ones that win. And you see that in broad spaces. Like, for instance, recently, I think, a company that's done a very good job of reinventing itself, which is obviously very commonly known as Disney, but when you think about, they bet pretty much everything on it, and it worked, which is fantastic, and they obviously had some going in assets, like a lot of their characters as well as assets. Um, and then you have another company that has evolved extremely well, which is New York Times, which went from you know, a newspaper at an $8 share price that's gone up 500% to becoming a global multimedia operation. Uh, and those are people that actually if you look at what went in those organizations, the changes were not necessarily technology. The technology appeared in those organizations long before they actually utilized them. It was the cultural shift that had to occur. And that's what I call the story. So you have to have the story and the spreadsheet. But if you don't combine the two, you don't basically win. 
And those are two examples, you know, Disney and New York Times are just two examples. And then companies that struggle to do it, uh, I would say much of the rest of the newspaper industry, much of it, uh, and almost the complete magazine industry. And, and I've worked with all these organizations. And let me assure you that these people who work in these companies are very smart people. And they're very good people. But for some reason, they were not willing to change. And because they spent too much time in either the spreadsheet side of the business and saying, if we do these things, it's going to cost us money in the short run, so we won't do it. Or there was a cultural divide between the old hands who wanted to basically remain to the roots of the organization versus new hands that wanted to reach for the stars or what I call the wings of the operation. And that's another combination that companies need to do, which is combine both the roots and the wings. And when you get that right, you're pretty unstoppable. Well, one, you know, an area in that comparison I love is, you know, Disney and New York Times on the, the positive side and obviously, you know, newspapers on the negative, but, you know, all traditional businesses, not like we're comparing, you know, uh, you know, technology startup to a traditional media business. You know, do, have you found that, uh, and even look at your experience in, in the agency side, that, you know, the talent there can reinvent itself, or is there some combination of, uh, you know, digital native talent and traditional that you need to have, or is it really you can change the culture of your existing team? I believe you can change the culture of your existing team if your existing team, uh, most of your existing team. So. What I have seen, and I've obviously had the opportunity to be involved in a major transformation of the old company that I worked for uh, called Publicis Group, which I'm still an advisor to and close to, but no longer work there. Um, and I saw that transition from a company that was, in 2006, 6% of our revenue was digital. And the last time we stopped counting, which is I think around 2018, 58% was digital it was hard to separate digital from analog, yeah. right? It was a company that was focused um, in, in a strange way. Uh, we had about maybe 150 engineers and a company that today has 15,000 engineers. Uh, so this is like a 10, 12 year you know, uh, journey. And what I figured out was, and we did some things right and we did some things wrong, but eventually we did more things right than wrong, so we lived to tell the day. But the three things that often people fixate on, answering your question about changing, you know, the, is people fixate on a strategy, very important. I was the chief strategist of my group, so yes, that's important. They focus on M&A, and that might be aqua hires or an M&A. That is important because when you think you want to go in a different direction, sometimes you have to bring in new talent and new capabilities. Uh, that's important. And the third is you have to rethink the way you've organized because most companies are organized for the past versus organized for the future, so they call that a reorg. And occasionally a strategy and M&A leads to a reorg. So those are what I call the fundamental threes that people focus on. But here is why it often doesn't work. It's not because the one, two, three wasn't done right. I've often seen one, two, three being done right. It's because nobody talks about four, five, six. And number four, five, and six have all got to do with the talent. So number four is why should I change? So I'm sitting in the company, I'm doing really well, and now you're asking me to learn new things and change and go through all kinds of pain. Why should I? Why is it good for me? And don't tell me it's good for the company, therefore it's good for me. No, 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 why is it good for me? That's number one. The second one is, 
if I'm going to do these things, how am I going to be incentivized? Even though it's good for me, it might be good for my career. But if you suddenly tell me to like, like I did things inside my old company where one day I was running 200 people and tens of millions of dollars of revenue. And the next day I was sitting in a room by myself running zero dollars of revenue. If my compensation had been basically based on how much revenue I was generating and people I was commanding, I would never have done that. Right? I would never have done that because I just, I decided to help the company, help them reinvent the future by launching the first digital agencies for the company. But in order to do that, I couldn't have hundreds of people and hundreds of millions of anything. We had nothing. But I went from year to year, but I was incented that if this worked out, that, and by the way, when I went from year to year, I didn't lose any incentives. So that was the second one. And the third one is skill sets. Who's going to provide me with training or people around me to help me? So when I started these new things, it wasn't just me learning. I got the ability to hire two, three people from outside who could help build our skill sets. And we forget that. So I believe any organization that once they have a strategy, some aqua hires and some reorg can change the, org the people inside as long as they tell them why it's good for them, how they get incentivized and what they get training. 75% of the people will change. 25% will not. And after you tell them why it's good for them and after you provide them with incentives and after you provide them with training, that 25% does not, does, that does not change, management is going to have to make a very tough decision. And it's really, really difficult. And I say it with great, uh, you know, great humility, which is how do these people get eased out of the organization? And that is a decision that many people are very unwilling to make for a very odd reason, not the reason that I usually find it very difficult. The reason I find it very difficult is because it's very hard to tell somebody they don't have a job, okay, because they have families and they got a whole bunch of things. But it's a little bit easier if you say, look, the world is changing, you have to change, I'm providing you with reasons, I'm providing you with training, and I'm providing you with incentives, and the person says, no, I don't want to change, and at some particular stage, you got to say, like, what the hell, right? But the reason, that's not the issue why people, these people still survive. It's because they control a lot of existing business, right? And so people are scared of them. And that's the worst thing any organization can do. Let someone who controls a lot of legacy assets threaten the future of the organization by not changing. And because some of those people are very senior and because some of those people are very close to the C-level executives, if not the C-level executives themselves, that's the biggest problem, which is make no mistake, there is no organization that I know of that does not have talent in the company. You do not have talentless organizations. It's not possible. There's not a company that I'm talking to or listening to you here today who doesn't have world-class talent. They just have to be unleashed. They have to be optimized. They have to be given these reasons. Yeah, I love the example, you know, of, you know, when you spun out the, the you know, digital part of the agency, you know, do you yep. think um, the other stakeholders, obviously, I think when you wrote in your book that um, you know, leadership was able to make that, um, you know, A, you had great people that were, you know, thinking long-term for the company. They, they set up the incentives so that uh, no one was really incentivized to, you know, um, to disrupt that. But do you think everyone realized how big digital could be, going back to your, your original point, um, you know, in order to, to make that shift? Uh, uh, I don't think any of us realize how big it was. And I would tell you, I would be the first one who was actually the leading voice to build these assets, who uh, missed a couple of things. I missed 
how big initially search was going to be, for instance. Um, it was one of the only things that we had to go buy versus build because I was building every, not me, I was helping a lot of other people build a lot of our other capabilities. I miss search and that has always been, a, and we eventually fixed it and we are the leading people in search. We, had, we bought Performix from Google, okay, but we fixed search. But it cost us money, but we fixed it. But the reason I missed that uh, among, is because I was paying attention to our clients. And if you remember, the first clients for search were not big companies. They were people who either were small companies or were never advertising. So it was the long tail. And I had no long tail advertisers. So I saw no demand and I therefore did not understand what was going on. Right? So that was one. But to your question, so I missed something as big as search. But the other thing that I did not miss, but I quickly figured out that this was growing bigger than I could imagine, was how big it was going to be. So while I was running most, I was the senior most digital person in the company who went to the board, which I happened to be on, and said, this thing is so big, I don't think I'm the right person anymore. This is bigger than my skill sets, okay? And we need to go actually purchase big companies fast to do things. Um, and we bought companies like Digitas and Razorfish. Um, and David Kenny, who came in from Digitas, I worked for him, right, for about six, eight months and a year. And then he left. And then I basically, you know, took his role uh, uh, because he had, got, he, he, he had an opportunity. But what, what basically tended to happen is, and then over time, I kept building cases as to why we needed to build and buy bigger things. So what happened is this thing got bigger and faster than even I imagined. So most people didn't realize how big it was going to be. Now, the good news was that I happened to have in Maurice Levy at that time, a global CEO who actually saw the vision much broader than I did, which was helpful. And he liked the fact that I, at, at Jack Lewis, who was the other person, and he, they liked the fact that I not only listened to them, but to a great extent, I understood from time to time that their vision was bigger than mine, but we managed to make the whole thing work. Um, and I think that's the other part of it, which is the ability to basically recognize that the world is changing so fast that somebody who doesn't make mistakes in this isn't really trying hard enough. How, so, you know, one more question on this, because I, I love this topic. How sure. would an organization or would you have looked at, let's say uh, it hadn't worked out, would, um, is that something that they kind of created some, you know, took away a risk for you for, you know, coming back? Or how should an organization look at that? Because um, obviously when it does work out, it's, it's amazing like the New York Times has done. Uh, but if it doesn't, what, how, yeah. how should an organization so, handle that? So here's what begins to happen. I think what needs to happen is one has to sort of recognize a few things. The first one is when you try these new things, my suggestion is put some of your best people on it. Okay. Take them away from the highly lucrative big clients, the big businesses, the big revenue streams, and put some of your best people on this. Most people don't do that. And there are two reasons why I would suggest that. Reason number one I would suggest that is it sends a very strong signal to the organization that the future is important. Because if you take some people who are really good and you move them into these new things, people say, oh my God, I got to pay attention. Versus taking people who are unknown or who can't, you can't place anywhere else in the company to put, put them on. So one reason is it's signaling process. And signaling is a big part of the culture. Because if people say, hey, the people I admire, the people who are running these big things are doing this, there must be something there. 
that this isn't like a leper's colony where people have gone. That's number one. But the second is this. The likelihood of these people succeeding in these new areas is at best 50-50. At best. Okay? And when you put some of your best people in this with a 50-50 success rate, here's what basically happens. You're beginning to learn whether there's gas in the coal mine or the canary knows how to fly. Right? And what myself and my team and management basically believe that we knew how to fly. But we would go down coal mines and sometimes we wouldn't come up. I mean, not literally die, but we would not come up. And their basic decision was, their thing was, the problem is not with the canary, it may be with the coal mine. So let's figure out whether this actually, this area is actually as good as we want. The truth of the matter in most cases was the problem was the canary was very good, the coal mine was habitable, but the canaries were confused about how to use the coal mine because it was new, right? And so the canary would come back and say, like half dead, there's something very strange. There's still gas in there, but it's damn strange. So the support that, that management gave was, okay, now we're going to give you some new maps and go down again, okay? And so what you need to do is recognize if you put your best people and then provide them with support, and, and, and the good people have to come back and say, here's what we're learning, including we're learning that maybe we don't know how to fly. Now, one of the reasons we succeeded, at least in, at Publicis, is many of us in senior management knew we did not know how to fly after a point, and we found people who could help us from outside, right? Or we trained people from inside. And it wasn't like we have to fly. So, you know, sometimes people call me and say, like, what's going on in this space? So I said, like, last time I actually did anything worthwhile, which was actually actionable, was 10 years ago. I'm clueless, okay? I can st strategically tell you where everything is, but you ask me to activate anything, don't you ever come near me because it's going to fail, right? But the ability to basically say, I now know what to do, but I know how to get other people is the other problem. And then not to take it personally because, in effect, if you're constantly letting the board know every quarter where you are, you don't surprise them by saying you put a whole bunch of money and then come back a year later and then everything's failed. Then they get really pissed off. But you basically say, give me a little bit of money. I'm going to come back in a quarter and tell you how it's going. Here's what's working. Here isn't working. And what they're really interested in, and this is the other thing that we have to realize in the media business, what senior management is really interested in is what isn't working and how can it be fixed? They're not really interested in what's working. They're interested in what isn't working, what can we learn from it, is it fixable, or what can we do? And I've always found that the best meetings are where you say, okay, we've got some good things going, but here are some things we're struggling with. Because there are two reasons. One is they trust you more. But the other is remember what you're asking them. You're asking them, there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow, but I have no idea as a leprechaun how to get there. So guess what this board says? We are super leprechauns. We will teach you, right? Or we will get someone else. Versus you basically saying, I'm all fine, and they quickly figure out it's not fine. So a lot of this has to do with interpersonal dynamics, and therefore you will find, uh, you know, specifically in companies that do this transition well, there is trust in senior management between key players. Because otherwise you can use all this data, and there's a lot of negative data that comes out. Not about the people, but about the learning process. You, people can use it to like damage people's careers. And that's why people don't basically do it. And, and you know, my old stuff is like, I can show you a list of things, and you know, Maurice and Jack could show you even a longer list, which they remind me, of stuff that didn't work out. But the good news is, 
none of it came to kill us. Okay, and we quickly figured out what didn't work out. And two out of three times, I would tell them it didn't work out. And one out of three times, they'd say, like, you're a fool. It isn't working out and you're refusing to acknowledge this. But we were batting, and the good days, we were batting about, you know, 70, 75% of what we did worked, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, another re uh, recent piece you wrote, The Great Invention, uh, kind of you know, dives into this further. Um, you kind of talks about how people can, you know, uh, kind of reinvent during challenging times. You know, what do you recommend as a starting point uh, for the process of the Great Reinvention? So the three simple facts that I would basically so the Great Reinvention was thinking overall about COVID and has like three stages. What I was explaining there would be never new norm, and this was written by the way in March of twenty seven, March of twenty twenty, and it reads like it was written yesterday. Okay, it was written a year ago, and. It's almost been like prescient in everything that it said. It's very popular. A lot of people at publicists and a lot of senior clients also keep reading it. So it basically says, hey, look, I said in March, this thing was gonna last 12 to 18 months, which it is, that's number one. Number two, that this was gonna be bigger than anything that we had seen before, because it was a health challenge, a financial challenge, a political challenge, and a social challenge, all occurring at the same time. Third is when anybody stops or starts doing something for 12 to 18 months, their behavior changes, even if they do it for three to six months. As a result, any business plan anyone has written in December 2019 needs to be revisited, if not thrown out. So, and the other is, there is no return to new normal, there'll be a great reinvention. And in order to do that, you need to do three steps. Step number one is basically say, what would my customers do differently now versus December of 2019? What would they start doing? What will they stop doing? What will they want more of? What will they want less of? And just to make sure that you do the exercise properly, start doing that exercise first outside your category. Pretend you're an airline. Pretend you're a restaurant. Pretend you're an event person. Ask that question. You'll come up with some pretty radical, what will they start, stop doing less of or more of, right? Now, once you've opened your mind, think about it for your own category. Right? What would people want more or less of? That's the first part of the exercise. The second part of the exercise is over the last 12 to 18 months, 12 months, it's been a year now since the lockdown. Most companies have learned something. They have. They've learned about what I call, they've learned what have been sort of the uh, fault lines in their business. So what hasn't worked? What's gone wrong? They've learned the resilience of their business. What's gone right? If they've looked, they've basically started to see new opportunities and they've seen new threats. Do a little inside analysis of that, you know, sort of a, a SWOT analysis, but the s strengths are shocks, the weaknesses, so the, the strengths are basically resilience, the weaknesses are shocks, and the opportunities are what may be new, because the asteroids of the earth are there new mountains, and weaknesses are what are new cesspools. And Think about it that way and then think in your mind that in December, that in February of 2019, February, March of 2019, as we were coming out of the Great Recession, we were also entering a new technology age driven by mobile and social. And companies thought they were restarting when they should have really been starting because there was a new mindset and there was new technologies. And Gillette and Schick kept thinking that they were competing with Gillette and Schick. They didn't see Dollar Shave Club. General Motors and Ford thought they were competing with each other and Toyota and VW, and they didn't see Uber and Tesla. So 
so basically sort of say hey what maybe new competitors that are likely to come out and what are the new opportunities we may be able to go to you know a brand like Lysol has become a service mark it's you know leveraging United Airlines and hotels and things like that it's, it's from being a you know just a disinfectant so they're those and then the last one the third step after you do like this external look at the customer consumer changes internal look at your own things then ask if you were to start a service a product that satisfies those consumer needs that you just or customer needs that you anticipated and you only have three constraints whatever you do has to be legal whatever you has to do has to be technologically possible in 2021 or 2022 and whatever you do has to break even in three years or less what would you do do that exercise companies will come up with outrageously amazing ideas and my whole stuff is if they don't do it immediately they're out of business soon because someone's going to do it so that's what i call the great reinvention yeah i love that what uh i'm trying to think the three constraints at the end um, the three constraints are it has to be technologically possible it has to be legal and it has to make money in three years or less break even in three years or less those are the only three rules so there's an economic rule but it's not next quarter it's three years or less a legal rule which is obviously you can't break the law and technology rule don't talk about technologies that don't exist in 2021 or early 2022 uh, and and if with with only those are the only constraints understanding new customer needs and understanding what your company has gone through what would you do and you'd be surprised that even the most curmudgeon you know ancient like me you know board member will come up with amazing ideas and i always also basically say ideally you do this with some alcohol or weed but if you don't that's fine to let your mind wander a bit but that's where the future is. So I keep telling people, don't talk about the new normal. There is no new normal. There's a new strange. Don't talk about restarting. Think about starting anew. Have you found, you know, across talking to, you know, all the, you know, the brands and, and organizations, um, A, are, uh, do newer and older organizations, are they find the same uh, impact from that exercise? And then I guess looking back at the constraint, the, the three-year, uh, economic part of that seems like that would actually favor a an older traditional brand that maybe still has resources that's just looking you know maybe their uh, existing you know product um, you know the life cycle is about to run out on it but what what have you found there? It's actually good for two types of brands. It's very good for established brands as what you say older established brands, and it's very good for startups. Uh, the reason is because startups venture capital doesn't expect to get its money back in three years or less. Right, so they'll give them the runway to basically go. The large organizations have multiple lines of business; they can draw credit lines, etc. The businesses that find it very hard to reinvent are the small to medium businesses, because they don't have the runway that they possibly can. And in fact, small and medium businesses have been most hurt by COVID, because the large businesses were able to draw, you know, get low interest rates. They had resources. Uh, and the small ones, the, the new startups had venture capital, but the mom and pop stores, et cetera, they have done particularly, they've, they've struggled the most. And what has helped them to a certain point uh, has been, you know, some of this loan forgiveness, et cetera, but not enough. Yeah, it just seems more like a kind of temporary Band-Aid than a 
you know, long-term reinvention for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, just, I'm kind of struck by what you talked about earlier on the, uh, the ratio of engineers. Was that, you said 150 to 15,000? Yeah. So we have, we have now 15,000 engineering out of 80,000. Um, and that's because of companies we bought like Sapient and Epsilon. Uh, and for instance, you know, in the publicist group, our second largest number of employees, if I'm correct, I think I am, of the United States is now India. You know, not, not the United Kingdom, not France, not China, it's India. What do you think, if we look 10 years ahead, you know, what does the agency of the future look like? So I would say that looking 10 years ahead, the agency of the future will be built around four deliverables. Uh, the first deliverable that will be built around, which will be very important and will continue to be forever important, is modern creative storytelling, data-driven storytelling. Because agencies are eventually about brands and brands are about stories, but they'll be told in new ways, right? Uh, they may be told in utilities and services and mongrel media, and it may not just be film and television and other kinds of stuff. But how do you basically tell stories in new ways? So ideas, storytelling, creative will be very, very important. It'll grow more and more important as machines and AI do more and more of the other things. So that's sort of one part of it, which I think agencies will always have. And that will require diversity of talent, global skill sets, again, which is very hard for any particular organization to insource. The second thing that they'll basically do is have a significant amount of scale in helping clients grow with major platforms. You know, today we have quite a few platforms and those platforms include companies like Walmart and not just Amazon, uh, but there are a lot of platform companies. So how do you basically deal with all these platform companies, each of whom have identity, network effects, direct to customer relationships. Those will grow and uh, agencies will basically have strategists, will have relationships with all these people and will be able to mix and match them. It'll be sort of the new media planning and buying, uh, which will also include you know uh, everything from screens and sound to apps to God knows who else that's coming. So that'll be a second component, which is how do you portfolio manage your contacts? It's a new kind of media planning you know, business uh, after creative aid. The third is basically strategic guidance and innovation. Where should you put your bets? How can you innovate? Innovation will continue to be important. And this is not innovation in creative storytelling, but innovation in product design, you know, et cetera. So that'll be the third area which will be important. And the fourth, which I believe, which agencies are gonna probably spend a lot of time doing, is they are going to, I think, be um, the place that knows how to create and manage and unleash talent. So the one thing that the agency business has over the last 10 years let atrophy a little bit, it hasn't atrophied completely, but let atrophy a little bit, is its ability to attract, retain, and motivate world-class talent. And that's going to grow important because if you see a lot of people who work at these extraordinary companies like a Facebook and a Google and Amazon, um, you're beginning to see that they have two really amazing benefits at that company, those companies. Uh, and there's a lot of benefits, they're two amazing benefits. One of them tends to be compensation, 
uh, they get paid better, especially the company stock price does well, etc. Some most of them have, so that's that's one thing. And the second thing that they have is they get credentials. They, they learn skill sets, they get credentials, so they're like marketable elsewhere. However, if you actually look at the nature of the job that they do, most of them, not all of them, but most of them, the jobs aren't that great because they're increasingly the handmaidens or hand masters, right, to machines. That in, in these companies, the money, the fame, and the repute goes to the engineers. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. Okay? Uh, and, but in the future, the, a lot of the, that thing, writing code, AI, machines, will do a lot of it. So what can you do in addition to the machines? And that will be about talent. And that is what certain companies like ours will be attracting which is ours meaning everything in the media space will attract because there are obviously different kinds of talent in different cultures and there's a very different culture that operates inside Accenture than one that ex exists inside McKinsey than one that exists inside Goldman Sachs and one that exists inside Publicis. And let me assure you, I'm friends with and I'm close to all those four organizations. They're different cultures. They're amazing talented people, different cultures. And the culture that is going to be the most creative in both allocating to connect with people, with storytelling, and basically with innovation and coming up with these ideas, I truly believe will be the media, the whole media ecosystem, creative agencies, media companies, etc. But we have to get there, right? And we've got to stop basically doing two things. A, we've got to stop thinking we're second-class citizens. For some reason, we've self-flagellated ourselves and we give ourselves away for free, which is pretty stupid. I mean, I'm different. I'm a starving author, but other, other people shouldn't. So that, that happens to be one. And then the second one is we should basically go out of our way to understand that we're living in a world where there is a lot of capital, but talent is rare. And our industry should stop basically believing that talent is available easily and capital is rare. It's exactly the opposite. Yeah, I love that last point. Uh, you know, a big part of our community is in the video space, you know, kind of taking that same lens five to 10 years. Uh, what do you think video advertising looks like? You know, what's the, you know, today it's predominantly branding. Obviously you're getting into some, you know, more shopping. Sure. What do you think, so, what problems are brands trying to solve? So, you know, if, if you think about it, what brands are, what everyone is basically trying to do is they're trying to grow and they're trying to grow four different things. Obviously they're trying to grow sales and revenue. Which is, which is number one. Number two is they're trying to grow uh, relationships with end consumers, customers, people, human beings that have a certain emotional level to it which math cannot break, right? Which is we choose with our hearts and we use numbers to justify what we just do, did. So how do we build that emotional connection? So how do we grow that emotional engagement with with the company, it's the second. Third is they want to basically find a way to grow and attract talent, to keep growing and attracting talent. So if you look at organization, grow my PNL, grow my relationships with my customers, grow basically my talent. And the fourth thing that they're going to be doing a lot of is grow how I am seen and my reputation with society because I need to optimize for the citizen and not the consumer. So what is my purpose, meaning, value, modern ESG, et cetera. Those are what 
everybody at the heart of it wants to do. They do it at different levels, but those are the four things. Television advertising will, I think, television will continue to be very big. In 2003, I wrote a piece called The Era of Visual Engagement, uh, which Jack Luce still points out to me, which we wrote in 2003, which describes the world we live in today down to T, right? I mean, that's what we were planning, the era of visual engagement. Visual engagement will continue to be very, very clear. But the difference right now is engagement, the word engagement is different today than it was when I first thought about it. Engagement in the old days was, can you get someone's attention to watch something and be moved by it? Today, engagement basically is, that's one part of it, but can you get people not to watch something and feel something, but do something buy something, share something, forward something, talk about something. It's very, very different. And as a result, I basically believe that the lines between what we consider to be video, audio, between messaging and e-commerce will all blur. Hydrochloric acid is what digital is. It breaks through the barriers, first of media, but now across everything else. So give you an idea. Let's look at TikTok, okay? TikTok is the first social media which you cannot watch without the sound. You can't do TikTok without sound. Try TikTok without sound. You can do Facebook without sound. You can do Twitter without sound. You can do Snap without sound. You can't do TikTok without sound, right? Uh, so it's already the first thing where you're beginning to see, okay, is this a social media? Is this a, what is it? Second is, and this is where people in the US should really pay attention. There's a line from Will, you know, William Gibson, the writer, that basically said the future is already here, but it's not evenly distributed. If you want to see the future, go to China, right? And, and you know, if you if you got like an anti-China plan, don't do that because it's a billion two people. Uh, you know, uh, anti-India, anti-China, anti-China. You should be anti-anything. You should be pro everybody and go learn. But there are there's a there's a company in China. Obviously, people have heard of WeChat. They've heard of Alibaba, etc. But the fastest growing company in China is a company called Pinduoduo, P-I-N-D-U-O-D-U-O. In the last five, six years, it's taken China by storm. And it's hard for me to describe what it is. Is it basically a video channel? Is it a gaming channel? Is it a group mass buying channel? Right? It all collapses. It all completely collapses. And so my basic belief is if you're in the video business, Try to figure out how do you integrate commerce into it? How do you basically become malleable, right? And do not, for God's sakes, do not think you're going back to the old days. Like I gave up on movie theaters long time ago. Movie theaters are done, right? Traditional broadcast television is toast, right? Toast means, yeah, you can slowly, as a cash cow, it isn't coming back. Explain to me why someone would go to a movie theater to spend more money than they could buying every single streaming service in the United States for that month. You could buy every two people going to a movie theater for a movie and some snacks cost more than the top seven or eight movie uh, streaming service all streaming services for that month. Okay, you got to drive a car. You got to move your physical space in there. More expensive, less safe, more inconvenient, just because AMC shareholders have to do well, forget it. Nobody cares. Right? Nobody cares. Right now, like, 
the, the, the reality of it is I'm sitting there, I was just looking, because I, I subscribed to all of these, so I was playing around with Paramount+. Plus. It's got amazing stuff. I'm watching all the old, you know, Star Trek stuff. Obviously, you could see it in other places, but I'm seeing it all in one place. But the reality of it is we're moving into a world of streaming. The reality of it is people have godlike power. Anybody in a boardroom, anybody in a video or a company that believes they have control should be banished immediately. This is why many of the media companies miss, right? Nobody cares about your PNL, nobody cares about your legacy costs, and nobody cares about your bonus. I just care about, I've got light power as a customer. I want it now on my side, fast, convenient, and cheap. And if you can't give it to me, thank you, someone else will. Somewhere in the world. Not you, somewhere else. You block something, I'm going to use a VPN. And that's what people don't realize, that the power has gone completely to the end user, and it does not exist in the boardroom. These boardrooms need to basically be blown to smithereens, right? Because they don't know what's coming to hit them. And most of these boardrooms, you know what they say? Well, you know, we have a junior board that visits us. I said, why shouldn't the junior board be your board? And you all basically <laughs> should work for the junior board at some stage. I'm not saying anything to do with age, right? It's, it's not age and age is how many years you are, but you have a young mindset. And one of the lines I simply ask people is, what have you learned lately? And if they say, we haven't learned anything lately, I said, then you've started to die, right? And this is the big stuff, which is the more senior you get, you stop learning. And you, there are three things that happen when you get senior, and I can tell you this. One is you stop learning unless you like have injections to keep learning. So I get up every morning for an hour and a half and I learn, because otherwise I won't know what the hell goes on even less than I know. That's number one. Number two is... Are you surrounded by jesters who tell you you're a fool? Now, I happen to be a company of one, so I'm surrounded by everybody who tells me I'm a fool. That's okay. But even when you're senior, do you have people who can come in and call out, as they call the turd on the table? Like, what are you talking about? But usually senior management, either because they're surrounded by other people or they're so scary, they are given only positive feedback, and so they start to believe that their flatulence smells like Chanel 5. It doesn't. It farts. It's a fart. It's a boardroom fart, which you all think is a Chanel 5. It doesn't work that way. And the third thing is do. You know, many of these, my stuff is like, all these people talk about all this modern stuff. I said, how come you aren't using any of it? Right? I said, when social media came, you all were like, where, where were you? Why weren't you all on Twitter? Why weren't you all on Pinterest? Now there's this new thing. Why aren't you on Substack? What are you talking about? If you aren't doing, how do I believe you? How does anybody of talented work with someone who's not a practitioner? Right? So I remind them, once upon a time in a place far away, you were a star. Please find that inside yourself and revive that. Because that's the only way these people who are senior in companies have got there. By the way, they're amazing people. But somewhere along, either because of what they surrounded themselves with or some goddamn bullshit they get from their friends, they have either decided that they have to wait till they retire. Right? No, don't do that. You're not going to retire till 70, 75. Right? Or this is not for real. And my whole thing is, you were a star then, you can be a star now. Why don't you hustle again? Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, well, I could, I could talk to you for hours here. I, I got you know, two more questions uh, sure. to kind of wrap up. You know, first, you know, go back to your book. Uh, as, as a father of an eight-year-old girl who's a, a budding filmmaker, I think my favorite story was uh, the day you spent uh, with your daughter uh, while she was making a film. And I've got probably two parts to yes. this question. Uh, one that, you know, I guess two parts that really had an impact to me. First, you talked about how, you know, for roughly $15,000, know, they got the output of what would have previously cost, you know, something near a million dollars. And second, yep. 
you know, the initiative and leadership that it took to, to kind of, you know, execute a project like that, you know, first was inspiring, but also, um, you know, I, I try to think about the types of organizations that could execute that, that are, that are larger than a startup. Would you mind talking more about this experience? Sure. So the, you know, the, the, the experience was our, our daughter who at that time was, who, who prior to that had spent five years actually at Google. Right, and then I decided she wanted to be a filmmaker, and and she went to NYU Tisch, and she also did an MBA at Stern, and this was her second film, and she basically put together a plan. She raised some money on GoFundMe or something like that, okay, or the equivalent of that, um, and and they found places, location places using Airbnbs, right? Their chauffeur service in the middle of you know. Brooklyn or Queens or wherever we'll be shooting was basically Ubers that came at three in the morning. Uh, they and and they and then they basically looked at each other as friends and they built a network. And then when the you know the and then she also happened to have her dad and mom and sister come and help her. So I was like the key grip. But the big news for me was in somewhere in the movie I got promoted to best boy because I was doing such a good job. Uh, and what a key grip does is basically carries the camera in the U-Haul truck. That's what I did. Okay, but. And as a result, this movie, the, the, the thing that was amazing was what were they using? They were basically using networks. They were using platforms to raise money. They were using networks or companies using networks like Airbnb and Uber. It was the, the reason the movie turned out good was all of those things enabled it. But the reason the movie turned out good was because of the talent, right? And a thing I try to remind people is, it wasn't the $15,000, but it, it was this, they had multi-million dollars worth of platforms working for them, for which they were paying $50, $100. They were r renting and leasing things, right? They were doing all kinds of incredible stuff, and they were basically thinking within a constrained budget, but it was always all, always about talent. And so it's, it's just talent expressed in a different way. The, the sequel to that story just occurred earlier this week, which is kind of interesting. So that movie that got basically made, right, as part of her thing, then has found itself, been selected at the Tribeca Film Festival, right, and had its premiere on HBO this Monday. Okay, so a $15,000 film premiered, it's only a 14-minute film, premiered on HBO. And for anybody who has HBO Max, go to HBO Max and type in Shadows, S-H-A-D-O-W-S, and you can see what $15,000 gets you. That's amazing. So, you know, the, the platforms, you know, that, pro that part of the process kind of became invisible and allowed uh, your daughter to really focus on the talent, which kind of back to your story is... On the talent, the storytelling, everything else, and all of that, and, you know, and, 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 but it, it came so naturally... I mean, even someone like me, who I, from time to time, I think I know what I'm talking about, which is very rare, but I even know. But, but I was told what to do, and I didn't understand half the stuff she was telling me to go do. Like, she says, we're going to go here, we're going to look at this app, we're going to look at that thing. And my stuff is like, how do you do all this for little money? She says, okay, we plug in here, we borrow this for two hours, we do this for three hours. And that is why I keep reminding people that all of us, and I, every senior management person, middle management person who's listening to this, let me tell you, you aren't middle management and senior management because of nothing. You're there because you actually are good, right? You're absolutely amazingly talented. I truly believe everybody has talent. What sometimes happens is the world changes on us and we forgot, forget how to rev up the talent and reboot the talent and reinvent the talent, but we are. And my whole stuff is hustle, people, hustle, right? Hustle's a good thing. And 
middle to senior management, especially senior management, we don't hustle that much and we should. Absolutely. Well, last question uh, we ask all our guests, uh, if you could have everyone read one book right now, uh, obviously in addition to your own, you know, what book would you recommend? So if, if there is a book that I would basically recommend, if there's one book, it's a book by the New York Times writer, Michelle Kakutani is her name, Michelle Kakutani. Uh, she was for many years the uh, reviewer and the book is called Ex Libris, E-X-L-I-B-R-I-S. It's a beautiful book. And the reason it's a beautiful book is it's her encapsulating the wisdom and knowledge of a hundred books in one book. So she basically, and, and it's fiction books, nonfiction books, global books, books that were written a hundred years ago. So she has an entire three pages on Muhammad Ali, right? Which are the three books and explain what Muhammad Ali did, right? She has books about immigration. She has books about science, but it's an amazing portal into every other book you may want to read for the rest of your life. Excellent. I'm going to add that one to the reading list for sure. Rashad, I, I, I'm so grateful for your thank time, you. and I, I know our community is going to love this conversation, uh, but you know, just can't, can't thank you enough. Well, thank you, and for people who want more of this, you know, it's rashad.substack.com is my weekly nonsense that I write, r-i-s-h-a-d.substack.com. Oh, absolutely. Must read, and we'll, uh, we'll link to that uh, in the story on our site here. Perfect. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Screen Bites. I hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as I did. You can find out more about CrossGreen Media at crossgreenmedia.com. And please don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter, State of the Screens. You can find us on social media at CrossGreen Media. Join us next time for more insights and analysis straight from the experts.